And so with that being said, if you want to go ahead and grab your Bible and turn to Acts chapter 8 is we're going to be in our teaching time today. Acts chapter 8, if you don't own a Bible, this, there should be a red copy, uh, this one around you. Please feel free to use this as your own, and I'll give you a page number. Acts chapter 8, this will be on page 974 in these Bibles. We're going to look at um, the second half of Acts 8, verses 26 to 40. So for the last couple months and for the next several months, we've been in the book of Acts just doing a series, kind of journeying through this book and looking at what, what, what happens when uh, God begins to move and God brings his renewing power and presence into the world. What does it look like for us to live for the life of the world? That's our theme this year. That's our priority is renewal uh, and seeking the renewal of God in our own personal lives and then socially and culturally as we move out into the world. And so we want to continue to look at that here. In this passage, Acts chapter 8, starting in verse 26, hear these words. An angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, get up and go south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is the desert road. So he got up and went. And there was an Ethiopian man, a eunuch and a high official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of her entire treasury. He had come to worship in Jerusalem and was sitting in his chariot on his way home, reading the prophet Isaiah aloud. The spirit told Philip, go and join that chariot. When Philip ran up to it, he heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and said, do you understand what you're reading? How can I, he said, unless someone guides me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the scripture passage he was reading was this. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb is silent before its shearer, so he does not open his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who will describe his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. The eunuch said to Philip, I ask you, who is the prophet saying this about, himself or someone else? And Philip proceeded to tell him the good news about Jesus, beginning with that scripture. As they were traveling down the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, look, there's water. What would keep me from being baptized? So he ordered the chariot to stop, and both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and he baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him any longer, but went on his way rejoicing. Philip appeared in Azotus, and he was traveling and preaching the gospel in all the towns until he came to Caesarea. This is the reading of the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's just take a moment to breathe in deeply and to breathe out. Take a moment of silence just to ask God to speak to us as we engage his word this morning, and then I'll pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God who speaks. Would you, by your Holy Spirit, as you did with Philip long ago, speak to us in a way that we can understand. We, your servants, are listening, and we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever 
had a time in your life when somebody, you received a text or maybe a phone call or you ran into a friend at just the right time, almost like seemingly in an impossible way. Um, Someone was able to speak a word to you that just was the right thing at the right time. Uh, A couple of months ago, I was kind of in a little bit of a, a dark place, a hard place, uh, for a number of reasons, and uh, I, if many of you guys know me, I'm not like uh, the most vulnerable person automatically. Um, I tend to be a little bit more uh, withdrawn and reserved with the deep things that are going on inside of me, and, uh, and so I hadn't really talked about this to anybody uh, except for my wife, and just out of the blue, I get a text message from a pastor friend of mine in Ohio. He said, just something simple, hey man, think about you. How are you doing? And in retrospect, I feel bad for this guy because he just kind of hit me at the right moment. I was like, actually, I'm doing terrible. And I just began to like over text, just those long, you know, those texts that you don't really read. They're like, I was like doing that to him. Those really long, just like narrative texts. And I just start unloading. He's like, how about I just call you? And we just have a conversation. So he calls. We have like a 45 minute conversation. uh, And uh, and it was really beautiful. I'm really thankful for uh, his sensitivity. He said, you came to mind. And I just thought I would reach out. And, uh, and be available. And, uh, and he prayed for me. And it was just such a powerful moment of being seen, not just by this pastor friend, but being seen by God. And knowing that it's no accident that God placed me on his mind and heart at a time where I really needed a listening ear and a listening heart. Now, that, that, that's, that's the kind of opportunities we have each day to be used by God to bless other people. I don't know if you've ever experienced the reverse of that, though. Um, maybe getting the wrong text at the wrong time from the wrong person um, it can be uh, just like as, as much as this is a blessing over here, this can be uh, so damaging and so hurtful and so painful. Um, I'll never forget, uh, or maybe you sent like a text message to the wrong person or been the recipient of a text message intended for somebody else that was actually about you. Uh, it, it can just go really badly. I remember a time before texting um, when uh, my wife and I were first married, we uh, got pregnant, uh, ac- uh, say, accidentally. I mean, it, it, was, an ac- it was surprising to, to us. We were not planning to get pregnant, and it was uh, just several months after we'd gotten married. So we're like, all right, we're doing the child thing, you know? And so we, uh, get, my wife gets pregnant, and by January, uh, she had, uh, had a miscarriage. I know many of you have struggled with miscarriages and infertility. It's a really, it's a really dark place. And for several months, uh, I just remember, like, hiding, not wanting to go out. We had a lot of friends they were also newly married, getting pregnant, and we were just like, oh, if we have to hear one more person, you know, kind of say that they're, they're pregnant, we're going to just die. Like, we don't even want to go to church right now. And I'm on staff at a church. I'm a pastor. And uh, so that August, we decided to take a, a trip with some of our friends and go on vacation with them. We were like, finally, we'll have a safe place. We can be together. We don't have to talk about all this stuff that, you know, we can just be ourselves and just, you know, kind of uh, be with our friends. And when we get down to the beach and uh, one of the first days uh, out into the room, we're all sharing an apartment, one small space. Our friends gather us together, kind of surprised, and they say, hey, we have good news to tell everybody. We're pregnant. And we're like, of course you are. This is the worst possible thing that can happen. Now we're trapped here. We can't even say that we're mad that you're telling us that you're pregnant. You know, even though we're excited for you, we're mad. We're mad at God. We're mad at you. And it was just like the wrong thing at the wrong time. Again, not intentional. But man, like those opportunities, I feel like are before us each and every day, opportunities to be sensitive to what God is doing and how he's speaking to us and through us and to bless and opportunities to be actually, you know, conduits of damage and pain and hurt with those that we love, even unintentionally. 
This is something of what we see in this story here in the book of Acts. Uh, just if you missed last week, this is really part two of uh, kind of the, uh, the, the adventures of Philip the missionary here, who's a deacon, just an ordinary guy who uh, gets sent out um, against his own will with a bunch of uh, dispersed Christians. They get scattered, uh, chapter 8, verses 1 to 4 tell us, um, out uh, because of persecution. This is a turning point, kind of a, a hinge point in the book of Acts. And they get scattered. And last week we talked about how God uses scattering in our lives to prepare us for his mission. We said that essentially life doesn't wait for moments of prosperity and moments of peace and when we feel awesome. Like life just keeps coming at us. It pushes on us relentlessly. Um, and we experience just a kind of uh, unending like trauma and pressure and transition. That's just life. We tend to think that Life is like peace interrupted by trauma and transition. It's actually the opposite, though. It's like lots of trauma and transition interrupted by brief moments of peace. And we've got to learn to uh, live on mission with God in the midst of the trauma and pressure and transition. Life is not going to wait for us. As we're being scattered out, we have to learn to live out the mission of God rather than seeking to put that on hold until we get to a place where we're ready to live out the mission of God. And last week, we saw that happen on a macro scale with an entire city being turned upside down. And then this week, we get to zoom in and see that happen on a micro scale with a surprising individual. And so I just want to talk about two things this morning in our brief time together. One, I want to talk about, as we think about the mission of God, the mission that God has for us, the work of renewal, both personally and socially, I want to talk about the, the kind of posture um, that God wants to invite us into. What does it look like to have a missional posture and then I want to look at um, what does it look like to have a missional presence? So missional posture and missional presence. So let's start first by looking here at a missional posture. The missional posture that God invites us into in times of stress and trauma even is and really begins, mission begins with an openness to the Spirit of God, to the Holy Spirit, to the leading of the Holy Spirit, to the speaking of the Holy Spirit. One of the things that you'll notice in this passage that is so uh, easily missed but so encouraging is we try to live out God's mission in our lives. Luke is eager to draw our attention to the in the story to the Holy Spirit's role in initiating and accomplishing the mission of God to bring renewal to the world, right? From beginning to end, the story is bookended by the, the activity of God. This isn't something that Philip invents. This isn't something that Philip just does compulsively. There's an invitation to join the primary actor and missionary in the book of Acts, which is the Holy Spirit, not the disciples. Many people actually call the book of Acts, it's been called the Acts of the Apostles. I think historically, though, it's actually been better called the Acts of the Holy Spirit. The book of Acts are the Acts of the Holy Spirit. He is the missionary. He is the one that is working. He is the one that is desiring. He is the one that is drawing and saving and speaking. All of the movements in the book of Acts happen because the Holy Spirit moves first. And we especially see the Spirit's direct involvement when God's people in the book of Acts have to cross boundaries, when they have to cross racial boundaries, when they have to cross ethnic boundaries, when they have to cross cultural or geographic taboos or even areas or people that would be considered unclean or unholy, that's when the Spirit has to give them a bit of a nudge and, and at times a coercive nudge, like a little bit of a, a violent nudge in the way that the Spirit, only the Spirit can do. And if you notice, three times in this passage, God invites Philip into this work that he's been doing 
long before Philip ever showed up, long before the disciples are here, God is at work and he speaks to Philip. So if you notice verse 26, an angel of God, a messenger speaks to Philip, go get up and go south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. Again, verse 29, the spirit told Philip, go and join that chariot. And then the very last verse, uh, one of the very last verses here, verse 39, when they came up out of the water, the spirit carries Philip away. And the eunuch doesn't see him any longer, and he appears in Azotus, traveling and preaching the gospel. Three times God speaks to Philip in this passage. This begins with an angel giving him clear but imprecise directions. Go south, right? That's often how God speaks. He doesn't give us the entirety. He doesn't give us all the particulars and the specifics. He just says, I want you to get up. I want you to begin to move in the direction of south, right? So that's often how it starts with clear but imprecise directions. Start walking south. So, and the most amazing thing about this passage is Philip does it. He stands up and says, he just, he got up and he went. And as he's walking south, the spirit says, there. Go find, you see that Uber over there, that chariots were like ancient Ubers, right? Like you see that Uber over there. I want you to go up alongside me. Imagine you're walking down Broderpool Ave, somebody's Ubering and the spirit says, go over and knock on that window, right? Like your worst nightmare, right? Like the worst thing you'd want to go. And I don't know if the, the chariot had stopped, they're having mechanical problems. I don't know. Like, dude, might, maybe he was in shape. It says that he actually had to run up beside it, so he must have been in pretty good shape to keep up with this Uber. Um, and he hears this man reading out loud to himself, which would have been very common in that day. It was actually, the way that you read was you would, you would read out loud. And he asks him a simple question, what are you, do you understand what you're reading? And of course, he says, how would I understand unless I have a guide? And he's actually reading a, a little section here from Isaiah 53 on the suffering servant, on the Messiah, who would be crucified for the sins of the world. The guy eventually becomes a follower of Jesus. He gets baptized. And then we see Philip being led away to another place by the Spirit. And I just want us to just stop here and pause and to see something very obvious and yet something that we miss often as we think about mission. Mission begins with an openness to the voice and to the leading of the Holy Spirit. Mission begins with an openness to the Holy Spirit. Are we open to the Spirit speaking to us in these kinds of ways, leading us into mission, remembering that we don't have to make things happen, right? The, matter of fact, the more we try to make things happen, the harder it is for us to engage in authentic mission. That's not often how we respond, or at least not how I respond when God speaks, God speaks all the time. We have a God who communicates to us constantly, daily. He's speaking to us. The question is not, is God speaking, but are we listening? When God speaks, I at least often want to ignore God, or I want to just say, you know, did God really say that? Is that really God? You know, or, you know, God, uh, give, me, give me a couple hours. I'll get back to you, right? Like, we kind of downplay or delay or ignore um, no, God, I'm, I'm good right now. Like, I, I actually don't want to go talk to that person. You know, like, that, th these are the responses and the ways that we respond. And it's often even difficult for us to hear God's voice. I was thinking this week about why is it so difficult? I don't know about you, but why is it so difficult to just hear the voice of God, right? Like, we, we have so many voices that are calling out for our attention. And so just some of the things that came to mind, I don't know if these are obstacles for you, but they 
seem to be for some of my own. Um, one is, is just hurry. Hurry and efficiency makes it hard for me to listen to the Spirit of God, right? We wake up in the morning, and oftentimes the first thing we go for is our phones, and we're, we're immediately thrown into a flurry of activity, checking the news, emails, and then we're off and we're into the flow of a life of hurry, which is just kind of the natural pace, the natural rhythm of life in America, right? There's uh, psychologists and mental health professionals have identified a growing epidemic that they actually call hurry sickness in the West. Meyer Friedman, who's a cardiologist, he actually coined this phrase, hurry sickness, after noticing that most of his at-risk patients displayed a persistent sense of time urgency. We live in what some people have called a time poverty mentality in America. Here's what Meyer Friedman says. Hurry sickness is a continued struggle, a continuous struggle, and an unremitting attempt to accomplish or achieve more and more things or participate in more and more events in less and less time. This is the essence of hurry sickness. We live in a world that values efficiency, right? Which puts us into a certain kind of way of being in the world, right? Speed, five-year goals, reverse engineering our lives, start with the end in mind and reverse engineer your life back. And all of a sudden, you, you have all of these goals, you have all of these plans, your life is moving at a certain kind of pace and we've scheduled out any space or any room for spontaneity and hearing the voice of God in our lives. I don't know if that resonates at all, but that is certainly, I think, a barrier for a lot of us. Distraction can be a huge barrier for us listening to the voice of God. We have internal noise that keeps us from hearing the voice of God. We live with so much guilt and shame and fear and anxiety inside of us. We, we, we escape all of that. We seek to escape that through fantasy, right? And we find it hard to pay attention to the voice of God because we have so much internal churn, so much internal chatter, right? Like we're always ruminating, we're always talking, we're always thinking, we're always scheming. And it crowds out the voice of God and our ability to discern what the Spirit might be saying. We have that kind of internal talk track. We also have external noise, right? Like we live in a world that's just noisy. Broderpool's noisy. It's loud. Like if you live in the city, it's just all the time. Fire trucks, police cars, noise, people yelling, screaming, you know, cars honking. Um, we have social media notifications popping up and assaulting us on our phones. We're in meetings from, you know, the moment we wake up in the morning until the time we come home from work. We're in this ceaseless, unending activity, right? And we always have our AirPods in. Like, I'm just noticing in myself, like, I have this tendency, mostly, even if I'm not listening to something, I just want you to think I'm listening to something, so I'll have my AirPods in. Um, but we're just constantly listening to podcasts and music and, and just filling our minds with, with noise, and it, it serves to just kind of keep us preoccupied. And if I were to say, like, the biggest inhibitor to us listening to the Spirit is just this constant sense of mental and emotional preoccupation. We have no room, no space to hear the voice of God. And then the last thing I would say is we all probably battle um, assumptions. Assumptions in the sense that we have beliefs or scripts or values that guide how we see God and how we see other people. And so we assume God can't work this way or God wouldn't work among this group of people. So surely he wouldn't be calling me to just get up and go south, right? Like literally in our city, if you live in Broderpool, there's there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a, a kind of inertia um, that wants to move us north, not south. 
right? Like literally, geographically, there's all kinds of biases and prejudices and assumptions and, and what we might call priors, like internal priors that form the boundaries that shape our habits and our relationships and our actions. And often those assumptions keep us from listening to, hearing, and responding to the voice of God in our lives. And so what we need to do, as Philip teaches us here, is to begin to cultivate an awareness of when the Spirit is speaking to us. And to begin to step into those, what one author calls just Spirit-prompted spontaneous moments, right? Unplanned, like uncertainty, unpredictability. This is the spirit zone. This is where the spirit begins to speak in our lives. When we, when we know the spirits at work, it's often things that are not planned, that are not on our schedule, not in our five-year goals. For me, it's often, I actually know when the spirit's working, when it's things that I tend to want to avoid or people that I tend to want to avoid, I begin to get a sense for, hey, God's probably speaking to me right now. And I know all of us in different ways have been the beneficiaries of other people's obedience to the unplanned and the uncertain, right? Like my own conversion story, how I came to know Jesus. I didn't grow up in the church. And, um, and I began to have uh, these crazy dreams where God was, I believe now in retrospect, like the spirit of God was speaking to me in my dreams. And I was 13 years old. And about, uh, this is the fall of 1993, uh, a friend of mine just kind of casually invited me to church, right? Like just listened to some prompting and said, hey, come to church with me. And then randomly, like that night, the pastor of that church just came by our house, and we just happened to be home, and he just happened to share Jesus with us, and we just happened to become Christians. My entire family system turned upside down by somebody simply listening to an invitation to say, hey, invite this young, stupid, idiot, 13-year-old to church with you. And he just obeyed, and God used that spontaneity to bring us into a relationship with Jesus and change our lives. And I think about how many of us have benefited from somebody else's prompting a name pops into your head, right? And just for no reason, you just say, hey, I've just been thinking about you. Like how many times have you been, a, been the beneficiary of those kind of small moments? And how many of those small moments do we have throughout our days? Or like just, it doesn't have to be something big. It's just the small, ordinary things that you're already doing, just saying, how could I be listening for what God might want to do? Um, you, you have three meals a day. You have an opportunity to eat three meals today, a day. Maybe you're in the workplace and you have an opportunity to invite somebody to share a meal, right? You have meetings throughout your day. You, you go to basketball games with your kids. You go to the gym in the morning or in the afternoon. Um, you have opportunities as, as you, you know, snuggle with your kids at bed, bedtime. Like God provides these beautiful opportunities to speak words of blessing in life if we're paying attention to what God's doing. My wife is so, so good at this. I am terrible at this. My wife is so discerning when it comes to the spirit. Literally, I'm not kidding you, about every other day, my wife will come home and say something along the lines of, you will not believe what somebody told me today, right? Like she just has this openness to what the spirit's doing and this ability to discern. Literally, like people just pour out their lives to my wife at the grocery store. I mean, people cry on a regular basis talking to her. She has this intense sensitivity to what the spirit's doing. And so we have to learn to kind of cultivate that kind of discernment where we're paying attention to the Spirit speaking to us and learning the unique ways that the Spirit wants to speak to us. He speaks in all kinds of different ways. For some of us, he may speak through an impression. For others of us, it may be a bodily sensation. You get a feeling in your gut. You get a feeling, you get a headache, or you just have this feeling of extreme joy. Um, maybe it's a dream, like God speaks to us and he speaks throughout the Bible in dreams. I don't know what that looks like, but I know that God is speaking the question is, are we listening? 
And that's where like spiritual disciplines can be so helpful, right? Like creating space for attuning ourselves to the spirit. That's why we need regular periods of silence. That's why we are trying to every morning help you through our community rule of life, wake up and spend five or 10 or 15 minutes in silent contemplative prayer and scripture reading to listen for the voice of God, to wake up first thing in the morning before you grab your phone. Immerse yourself in the reality of God speaking to you. Listen and learn to be silent. Jesus, would you speak to me today? Would you direct my schedule? Here's all of my plans for the day before I just throw myself into and hurdle myself into the violence of my day. What would it look like for me just to sit before you and say, how do you wanna redirect my plans? Who do you want me to meet with today? Who do you want to bring to my mind to be a blessing to today? And just sit and wait without an agenda, without preoccupation, without distraction. We need those rhythms of silence and solitude and prayer and scripture reading and Sabbath and and coming together to worship, to discern that corporately, right? Like, I know a lot of people are asking us right now, like, what is our plans? What are we doing for the next five years? And I keep saying, like, I don't know. Like, I don't know what it is God's doing. It doesn't mean I don't have plans. It just means I don't want them just to be my plans. We, we need to have a sense corporately of what the Spirit is doing in the future that looks different than what it looked like before COVID. And we've got we've to discern that rather than compulsively try to make stuff happen for God. That's the kind of missional posture and openness to the Spirit that we need to cultivate if we're gonna be effective on mission. And the second thing we see just very simply and quickly here is this missional presence, right? Missional presence is one of hospitality, right? Um, We see that God is at work as he sends Philip out onto the desert road, right? We know that something is about to happen when God sends people out into the desert. There's always desert in the Bible is the word eremos. The word eremos is just the word for desert or wilderness. And it's, it's all, almost always the place of encountering God in the Bible. If you read Luke and Acts in particular, you'll see the spirit uh, at work in the desert, the spirit who is the spirit of the road, you could say. He is the Lord of the road. He leads Jesus out into the wilderness, out into the Ramos to encounter and to face the devil. Uh, Jesus would often retreat to the desert to pray. In the midst of all the noisiness of life, Jesus would, would kind of, move out into the desert to listen to the voice of his father. And then we see here, um, really, a lot of people pointed out the similarities between this passage here and Luke chapter 24 on the road to Emmaus when Jesus meets the two disciples who are uh, discouraged and depressed because of the, what happened uh, at the cross. And he uh, meets them on the road. And he meets these dis- disillusioned disciples and he reorients their hearts to God. And we see the same kind of thing happening here. Philip goes out onto the desert road, this place of encountering God, where he's going to encounter God, and this Ethiopian eunuch's going to encounter God. This, uh, just a little quick background on the eunuch, Uh, I I think all of us kind of know what a eunuch is, but actually most of us probably don't know exactly what a eunuch is. Uh, It's not something you probably spend a lot of time meditating and studying on, but just to give you the quick little uh, primer, a a eunuch in the Bible refers to uh, almost, almost always a biological male. Um, the, uh, a, a biological male who was infertile because they were often castrated and dismembered, right? It's just what you want to talk about in church. Uh, oftentimes against their will um, because they would serve, they, they, would, uh, they would offer themselves up for public royal service. And it was common practice for those who were in charge of the king's harems or the king's daughters 
or who had duties that involved close contact with the queen, you could see how it might be advantageous for there to not be any uh, sort of funny business going on there uh, between the servant and these women. And so this uh, eunuch essentially served as the queen's CFO, right? So very high power position. And he was from uh, Ethiopia, the Bible tells us. He was likely, in all likelihood, a black African man. Now, Ethiopia here in the Bible is not the modern nation state, right? The geographical location that Luke has in mind is actually the Nubian kingdom. Uh, basically, in the Bible, when you read Ethiopia, it's everything south of Egypt into what's today uh, modern-day Sudan. So think sub-Saharan Africa is what he's kind of talking about here. In the Old Testament, this would have been referred to as Cush, and there's all kinds of Old Testament references to uh, the people of Cush and to Ethiopia and to Nubia. This city was actually located uh, south of the Nile and was a capital of a major power from like 540 BC to 339 AD. And so this uh, term Candace is not a, probably a literal uh, woman named Candace, but is actually a transliteration of an Ethiopic title that was applied to a bunch of queen mothers over various generations. And so Ethiopia at this time is literally known uh, to the Greeks and the Romans as they would call it the ends of the earth. So again, we go back to Acts 1.8. You'll be my witnesses, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So this is the furthest reaches of and beginning to get outside of the Roman Empire. Um, and so this is a very significant place. And so we see this encounter between Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. And it's really framed around four questions. Question one do you understand what you're reading, right? Philip comes alongside this charity, hears him reading Isaiah 53 out loud, and he just asks a question, do you understand what you're reading? The Ethiopian eunuch responds and says, how can I understand without a guide, right? Like I need somebody to help me interpret and understand the scriptures, right? This is a man who, who's seeking God, right? And, and so he's asking for a guide. And then he asks this question, who is he talking about here himself or someone else, who is this man that's suffering? He seems to be drawn to Jesus as a suffering servant. And then after he believes in Jesus, he says, what would keep me from being baptized? These are the four questions that frame up this encounter. Just like the story in Luke chapter 24, Philip, like Jesus, plays the role of host. What we see here is a hospitable presence, the hospitality of God being embodied in Philip himself, the way that God comes to us, the way that God came to Philip, is now gonna be the way that Philip comes to the Ethiopian eunuch. We need to see that this is, this is God's posture. This is God's presence with us. This is how God comes to us. He comes to us through hospitality. Philip plays the role here of host, even though he's jumping into his chariot, the roles are kind of reversed, and he's playing host to this Ethiopian man. And he shows us what it looks like to demonstrate the hospitality of God to other people who don't know God. The hospitality of God is this movement of God that turns strangers into friends and friends into the family of God. This is what it means to show hospitality. Henry Nouwen, one of my favorite spiritual writers, says this about hospitality. He says, hospitality means primarily the creation of a free space where the stranger can enter and become a friend instead of an enemy. Hospitality is not to change people, but to offer them space where change can take place. It is not to bring men and women over to our side, but to offer freedom not disturbed by dividing lines. He says, if we wanna see renewal, if we wanna see revival happen in our world, we need to learn to cultivate spaces with a presence of hospitality. And he says, don't just think about your home. 
You can offer hospitality anywhere. Of course, you can offer it in your home, but even an Uber is an opportunity to show hospitality in unexpected, surprising ways. This kind of hospitality, now and goes on to say, is characterized by two things, and I think we see the same things in our own attempts to offer hospitality to our friends and neighbors who don't know Jesus. He says, on the one hand, it, it, it involves receptivity. Receptivity, right? You notice that Philip enters into the eunuch's story without agenda, without anxiety, not saying, hey, you know, without like, you know, this kind of self-preoccupation or agenda or seeking to do it his way. He doesn't say, hey, pull over the chariot over here or, or hey, come to my house or hey, uh, I want you to come to church with me. He just says, no, let me jump up in your chariot with you and accompany you on your journey. He doesn't set the terms. He enters in and allows the terms to be set by the eunuch of engagement. And there's just sort of an attentiveness and, a, and, a, and an openness, a curiosity, an intimacy here a vulnerability, a responding without coercing that characterizes a receptive presence. He jumps in and he just begins to ask questions. He doesn't jump in attacking him, assaulting him, telling him how he's wrong. He just says, do you understand what you're reading? Just a, a nice, gentle probing of what's going on inside this man's inner world. It was just a receptivity, and we must learn that kind of receptivity that should characterize good hospitality. How can I pay attention to what God might be doing in you without seeking to impose my own agenda, my own sense of timing, my own pace, my own way of even ensuring that that happens and just trusting that the Spirit is already present. He's already at work. That's how we move from like a kind of anxious presence to a receptive presence. It's a trusting that God was already here before I was. God's already at work before I am. And so I'm just entering into the story of another with the help of the Holy Spirit, which again, we said is the Holy Spirit is the LeBron James, maybe it's not a great analogy now, but the LeBron James, the John Morant, whatever, of evangelism. He, he does the work. He does the heavy lifting. We just enter in, and we, we get to participate in something he's already doing. So there's receptivity, and then there's confrontation, right? Like he doesn't, he, he, he asks, and then he, he speaks truth. He tells the story of Jesus starting in Isaiah as the crucified and risen Messiah. Jesus has come and he's fulfilled all of Isaiah. All of Isaiah finds its fulfillment in the Messiah, Jesus, the one who is gonna bring his people out of exile, bring the kingdom of God to this earth. The good news, right, that we are sinners, that we need to be reconciled to God, that God has made the kingdom, the reign and the rule of God available to us in Jesus Christ. And he shares that with clarity and with conviction and without ambiguity, right? No, no need to hide, no need to obscure, no need to people please. He just says, hey, this is the story of Jesus. You wanna know about Jesus? Here it is. Jesus is the point of the story. All of the Bible, all of the scripture, all of your desires are found in Jesus. And notice Philip has no like seminary training, no theological training, right? We ought to be able to all do this. We ought to be able to take the story of Jesus and be able to share it with friends and family members and neighbors in conversational ways, right? Unforced opening up the story of Jesus and telling the story. We need both of these things together if we're going to engage with the missional presence of hospitality. Now one goes on to say this, receptivity and confrontation are the two inseparable sides of Christian witness. They have to remain in careful balance. Receptivity without confrontation leads to a bland neutrality that serves nobody. Confrontation without receptivity leads to an oppressive aggression, which hurts everybody. 
Let me just close this as we go to prayer and communion um, with uh, just one more thing I want to say to those who might find themselves not in the position of offering missional hospitality, but those who might find themselves needing to be the recipients of a missional hospitality, those who might find themselves identifying with the eunuch as seekers and strugglers, maybe doubters, maybe those who have been walking through seasons of deconstruction and disillusionment, right? We have here a man who's seeking, right? He's gone to buy a scroll. The scroll of Isaiah, not an easy thing to find. Most people didn't read. They didn't have the money to. So we have a guy here that has literally driven thousands of miles to sit on the outskirts of Jewish worship and to learn about Jesus. We have a seeker. And I just wanna say to you, I think there's some instructive things here that maybe could help you on your own journey. Just real quickly, three things that you see here. One, um, the importance of starting with scripture. It's amazing to me how many seekers and how many people who even grew up in church and are deconstructing their faith in Jesus have never read the Bible, never actually encountered the real Jesus. What you've encountered is a caricature or a distortion of Jesus handed to you maybe by your church or your family of origin or by an internet search. Read the Bible. Jesus is an amazing person. Read the story of Jesus for yourself. Don't take other people's words for it. Secondly, seek out guides. Have the humility not to just trust yourself or to trust an internet search or to trust maybe just what you're feeling as you're reacting to certain emotions or certain anger that's rising up within you or shame that you're, that, that's being triggered for you. Um, man, we all need guides. We need people to guide us. We need the wisdom and the support of the creeds and the traditions and the knowledge and the ancient pathways, Right? So if we're not trusting Jesus to make sense of the world, who are we trusting? We're trusting ourselves, or we're trusting the contemporary wisdom of our philosophy professors or friends on social media. Distrust your own instincts. Learn to be a little bit more distrusting of your own doubts even, and learn to bring those things to authentic Christian communities. That's why we need the church. We need a place where we can wrestle with God. And then finally, I just wanna say, follow your pain to God. Follow your pain to God. Many scholars, particularly scholars of color, black and brown scholars, have highlighted the interesting fact that the eunuch would be reading Isaiah 53. Why was he reading Isaiah? Why was he reading Isaiah 53? And particularly this moment where he is recounting the suffering and the injustice that the Messiah would endure. Could it be that this God fear seeking entrance into Judaism? returning from Jerusalem, a place where he would not by law, Deuteronomy 23, have been allowed to come into the temple because he was dismembered and castrated. He could not participate as a full Jew. He himself had this weird kind of social and spiritual status ambiguity and inconsistency. He could not really fully come in as a Jew. He'd experience a lot of injustice even in his own life. Is it possible that he felt what had been done to him as he reads the story in the humil- humiliation of Jesus, that he's identifying with Jesus as a kind of eunuch. Jesus is a man who had been denied justice, the ultimate paradigm for a eunuch who was single like him, who was without physical offspring like him, who was cut off literally like him. And he reads the story of Jesus and he sees the suffering and the cross and the humiliation and the vindication of his resurrection. And maybe, just maybe, he goes on a few chapters in Isaiah to chapter 56, and he finds hope and he finds dignity for himself and a place of honor in the coming kingdom. When he reads these words in Isaiah 56, no foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord should say, the Lord will exclude me from his people. And the eunuch should not say, look, I'm a dried up tree. For the Lord says this, the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, 
who choose what pleases me, who hold firmly to my covenant, I will give them in my house and within my walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give each of them an everlasting name that will not be cut off. He finds dignity, he finds hope in the crucified and risen Jesus, as many black and brown Christians over the centuries have in passages just like this. We allow our pain to bring us to God. We see in our own pain and suffering the pain and the suffering of God himself and the way that God wants to redeem and to renew and to restore and the way that God has entered into that in the life, death, and resurrection of his son, Jesus.